Welcome, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to Shatza. <clears throat> and I always like to begin satsang the way my guru, Baba Muktananda, began it by saying in Hindi, Sabka Varasanmani Kesat Pemse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always make the point that real spirituality begins and ends with welcoming another person with love, welcoming yourself with love. And he also said, all religious traditions in their essence are alike. What one needs is love. All traditions are about love. Of course, that's true at their best, isn't it? Their essence. Shaktipat, or the awakening of the inner energy, is not exactly a religious phenomenon. If it is a religion, it's a religion that transcends religions. It is not the monopoly of the Indian religious tradition. Shaktipat is something that in earlier times was also part of the Christian tradition. You've heard how Jesus performed his ministry. If he communicated with anyone, immediately that person's mind was changed. That person would experience great love and happiness. That was the Shaktipat of love. Shaktipat is meant for every person. Our ashram attracts people from all different religions and faiths, and they all receive Shaktipat. The energy that awakens is your own energy, which is right inside of you. As a result of the awakening, it begins to blaze, and then it activates spontaneous yoga. All that we need is the Shakti, the divine energy. And uh, that energy, as Baba says, operates differently according to your nature. The energy is one, but it manifests differently. And uh, through the power of that energy, we learn about deeper aspects of ourselves. So tonight, uh, and I always celebrate the great beings, and the main function of these great beings is not to give uh, long lectures or to scholarly uh, uh, interpretations, but to transmit Shakti, each in their own particular way, to transmit this divine energy, the actual experience of divinity uh, to people. And they're the great resource of humanity. And tonight, our sage is unfamiliar to us, Sri Nisargadatta uh, Maharaj. Let's see what photos we have. Wait, one more? Yeah. <clears throat> so, Nanasagadara Maharaj was uh, a certain kind of yogi. He was a yogi of the path of wisdom. Uh, and he taught uh, non-dual understanding. And he was in Ganeshpuri. He wasn't in Ganeshpuri. I was in Ganeshpuri. He was in Mumbai, or Bombay as we called it then. Uh, and he had a little a humble apartment in a humble part of Bombay. And uh, he used to meet friends every night and discuss scripture and so on. And this came after he'd, he'd accepted his guru. 
and uh, he's done sadhana, done spiritual practice for an extended period and then attained the self. And so he gave these teachings from the Advaita Vedanta uh, position. And uh, I'd heard about him, and so uh, when Girij and I went to Bombay on one of our trips there, uh, I, I said, let's go visit this Nasargadatta. So we went over, found him in this very back alley kind of thing, and spent a lovely couple of hours uh, speaking, uh, uh, not communicating by language at all, because he spoke Marathi, and uh, he couldn't understand English, and I couldn't understand Marathi. Uh, but the language of love was there. It was wonderful to meet him. And later I found his book, the book of, his, of uh, several dialogues with him, over 100 dialogues, a book called I Am That, which is one of the real classics of spirituality. And so we're going to hear something from I Am That, one of his dialogues. <clears throat> he was, uh, I should say, because it comes up in the, in the dialogue, that his profession, he was a householder, he had children, he had a family. <clears throat> when I went there, his grandchild came and, and ushered us upstairs and then brought tea to us, and it was very sweet. Um, and his profession was a questionable one from the Buddhist point of view. He sold cigarettes, and he became quite an entrepreneur, and had a lot of cigarette stands around Mumbai. I think he did pretty well. Um, <clears throat> But he himself, uh, because he was a chain smoker, he also uh, suffered disease at the end of his life because of that. But that wasn't where he was poised. He was poised in the absolute. So here's a question, here's a dialogue uh, with an American woman. She had, um, she had come to India and spent over a year in the Ramana, Ramana's ashram uh, uh, in Arunachala, in Chiru, and down in south, uh, Ramana, the great sage of Advaita. So she came to visit Nisargadatta, and she says, I was born in the United States, and the last 14 months I've spent in Sri Raman Ashram. Now I'm on my way, way back to the States, where my mother is expecting me. Uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj says, what are your plans? And he, he was very in your face. Um, he wasn't uh, aggressive in a way, but he was very there. And he questioned and pushed you, pushed you and questioned you in a very benevolent way, a very loving way, but very intense. So she says, I may qualify as a nurse or just marry and have babies. <laughs> Maharaj, what makes you want to marry? Very provocative question, isn't it? Uh, questioner, providing a spiritual home is the highest form of social service I can think of. But of course, life may shape otherwise. I'm ready for whatever comes. Maharaj, these 14 months at Sri Raman Ashram, what did they give you? In what way are you different from what you were when you arrived there? That's a really good question, isn't it? Very direct. What did you get from your stay? You spent 14 months in the, the ashram of a great sage. He'd been, he was no longer there in, in the body, but still it's full of shakti there and, 
and so on. So, question, I am no longer afraid. I have found some peace, she says. Maharaj, what kind of peace? <laughs> the peace of having what you want or of not wanting what you do not have. But two kinds of peace, isn't that interesting? <clears throat> having what you want or not having, not wanting what you don't have. Uh, the woman says, a little of both. <laughs> it was not easy at all. While the ashram was a very peaceful place, inwardly I was in agonies. Now when I hear that, I, I feel very happy. Because it means that the dynamism of the spiritual process was taking place for her. And that, we call that kind of agony tapasya, tapas, where you burn uh, and grow and transform. You can't grow unless there's that kind of friction and intensity. And so it shows that some spiritual process was alive because uh, to really attain the goal you have to burn through your ignorance, your preconceptions, your wrong ideas, your wrong identifications, so many things, bad tendencies that come up. You have to burn through it. And it's often a blissful experience, uh, like Jagadish reported. But he will also, if you get him in the corner, he'll also tell you of some tapasya that he's done. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> I wish we had a picture. We had um, somebody had a picture of um, uh, I think uh, Yogi Sri Stephen uh, with twenty needles <laughs> in his head because he was so intoxicated. He was putting like so many needles in the head. It was quite extraordinary. What? We'll have to get that picture. So anyway, he says, uh, she says, I was in agony. And Maharaj says, those agonies were the fruit of your sadhana, your spiritual practice. They were not like ordinary suffering. They were productive since they lead you to your present, they led you to the present fearlessness and peace. So ordinary suffering, which we suffer in the world of not having what we want, and having what we don't want, that's <laughs> normal suffering. Uh, but in sadhana, the burning that you do is fruitful because it expands your consciousness, it awakens you, it uplifts you, ultimately. Not pleasant when it's happening, uh, but it has good conclusion. <clears throat> she says, such realization comes and goes with me. I've not yet reached the immutabil immutability of absolute con consciousness. <clears throat> And Maharaj says, well, as long as you believe so, your search goes on to get rid of the false ideas that you're not complete. So from, you see, from the point of view of the, um, the jnani, they're different yogas. From the point of view of, of uh, yoga, of wisdom, it's just a wrong conception. As soon as you change your understanding, you'll arrive there. The rub is, that these wrong understandings are quite persistent. They're mired deep in our emotional body and certain tendencies. So um, 
<clears throat> for a yogi thinks differently. A yogi thinks, I've got a lot of impurities in me, which I have to do lots of practices to burn up, and then the channels will open. And a bhakta thinks, there's some block to my love. There's some, the love comes and goes, and it's blocked, and it's there, and I have to somehow get through this and open this block up. And so each has their own approach. So Maharaj says we got false, false understanding. Uh, sadhana removes the superimpositions. <clears throat> superimpositions is a phrase from Advaita Vedanta. They say that the illusion of the world is superimposed on the absolute. That the absolute, God, is perfectly pure and serene and then the world is a superimposition. Just like when you're asleep at night, your dream is a superimposition. It doesn't really exist. It's just imposed on your awareness. So these superimpositions have to be removed. <clears throat> he says, when you realize that you are consciousness itself, something that cannot be cut or killed, only then does all fear go. So if you know your Bhagavad Gita, that's a, that's a reference to the Bhagavad Gita because in it, uh, Krishna says, the self cannot be cut or killed. The self never dies. Uh, so, so even though the body dies, even though we're subject, subjected to disease and old age and so on, um, there's a part of us that can never be destroyed, that's immortal and blissful. But there's a part of us that's mortal and painful and difficult and unhappy, but that's not the real thing. When we move towards identifying with the higher part of ourselves, we get freed of this lower part. That's the, the path of wisdom. <clears throat> when you're consciousness itself, nothing can pierce you, and you can pierce everything, he says. She says, yes, sometimes I feel that way, indomitable. I am more than fearless. I am fearlessness itself. Maharaj, what made you go to the ashram? <clears throat> she says, I had an unhappy love affair and suffered hell. That's one thing that turns many people to spiritual life, isn't it? <clears throat> they, say they, 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 they say scripturally that there are uh, four kinds of seekers. There's those who suffer, escape, who want to escape from pain. Then there are those who are seeking Wisdom, uh, what are the other four words? I don't remember, <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> four kinds of seekers, though. <clears throat> seeker of knowledge, See, oh, seeker of liberation. Yeah, those are the good ones. And what, what's the fourth one? Suffering from, huh? Huh? Oh, wealth, that's right. Seekers of wealth, that's it. They do spirituality in order to get rich and get your desires fulfilled. No one they couldn't think of it. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, man. <coughs> yeah. He says, neither drink nor drugs. She says, neither drink nor drugs could help me. This was after a. Fed love affair. 
I was looking for some relief and eventually came across some books on yoga. From book to book, from clue to clue, I came to Ramana Ashram. So she must have read Search in Secret India by Paul Brunton, heard about Ramana and gone there. <clears throat> Maharaj, were the same tragedy to happen to you again, would you suffer as much considering your present state of mind? And she says, no, no, I would not let myself suffer that way again. I have found something inside myself. I feel that I'm not even afraid of death now. Real attainment in 14 months, pretty good. Maharaj, so you're not afraid to die? She says, I'm afraid of dying, but not of death itself. I imagine the dying process to be painful and ugly. Maharaj, how do you know? It need not be so. It may be beautiful and peaceful. Once you know that death happens to the body and not to you, you just watch your body falling off like a discarded garment. She says, I'm fully aware that my fear of death is due to apprehension and not wisdom. Maharaj, human beings die every second. The fear and the agony of dying hangs over the world like a cloud. No wonder you two are afraid. It's culturally the worst thing. You know, in every movie is death, the worst thing. But once you know that the body alone dies and not the continuity of awareness and the sense of I am reflected in it, you're afraid no longer. Question. <laughs> she says something really good. Well, let us die and see. <laughs> Maharaj, give attention and you'll find that birth and death are one, that life pulsates between being and non-being. You know, in every one of his dialogues, he rises to the poetic level, a spiritual poetic level, and this is what he does here. He says that life pulsates between being and non-being, and that each needs the other for completeness. You're born to die, and you die to be reborn. So every second we're moving between being and non-being. Don't know what that means, but it really sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> Question. Does not detachment stop the process? Detachment? No. With detachment, the fear goes, but not the fact. So you still go through it. <clears throat> Question. Shall I be compelled to be reborn? How dreadful. There's certain people in the ashram, when I talk about rebirth, they say, I don't want to be reborn. Other people are eager to be reborn. My father had the best thing. He said, I want to know who I'm going to be so I can leave my money to him. <laughs> That's very clever. <laughs> <laughs> Mara says, there's no compulsion. You get what you want. You make your own plans and you carry them out. That's actually the, the law of rebirth, is that we, we create it by our desire, by what we want, by the unfulfilled desires. We create that. <clears throat> so think about your life. You did it to yourself. 
you selected those parents in that suburb, you know, in that country? How did you do that? <clears throat> Questioner, do we condemn ourselves to suffer? Maharaj, we grow through investigation, and to investigate, we need experience. We tend to repeat what we've not understood. This is very nice, too. We are sensitive. If we are sensitive and intelligent, we need not suffer. So we have to examine, be, see behind the thing, not get so caught up in events, but see behind to the reality of the event. He says, pain is a call for attention and the penalty of carelessness. So if you have pain, suffering in some aspect of your life, it means investigate it, do inquiry, see what that's about, and you can overcome it. Because it's not, pain is never, never the ultimate truth. There's always a deeper layer, and that layer is always peaceful. He says, intelligent and compassionate action is the only remedy. And she says, it is because I've grown in intelligence that it would not fall into such suffering again. But I can ask you, a, can I ask you a question? He says, no. No, he says, yes. <laughs> this, this is tough stuff. If a person is overwhelmed by grief, how do you feel about suicide? Marge, <clears throat> it would be a solution if it actually solved the problem. So he's saying that it doesn't solve the problem, it just puts it off. Because the, that you have to handle that quality in future reality. He says, but what if it does not? What if it does not solve the problem? Suffering is caused by extraneous factors, some painful and incurable disease or unbearable calamity may provide some justification. Oh, if you have this suffering that's caused by some external thing, there might be some justification, he's saying. Um, but where wisdom and compassion are lacking, suicide cannot help. So he has a very nuanced concept of it, interesting. A foolish death means foolishness reborn. <laughs> Besides, there's the question of, car of karma to consider. Endurance is usually the wisest course. Endurance, that's why Sai Baba made endurance, <clears throat> faith and endurance as his two main things. The faith in the divine and the power to endure whatever happens in your life. Life is basically unendurable. <laughs> so many reasons it's unendurable. And we have to develop the endurance to go through it, and then everything's fine. Question, must one endure suffering, however acute and hopeless? Maharaj, endurance is one thing, and helpless agony is another. Endurance is meaningful and fruitful, while agony is useless. So when you have bring, apply wisdom to it, it becomes sadhana, it becomes tapasya, not just useless suffering. She says, why worry about karma? It takes care of itself anyhow. And now he says something really interesting. How are we doing? Good, good dialogue, no? Doing? <clears throat> he says, 
Most of our karma is collective. Isn't that interesting? So that got me thinking. It means cultural, that we, we share a cultural, so much uh, uh, cultural baggage with our contemporaries in our, in our particular thing. <clears throat> we suffer for the sins of others, and others suffer for ours. Humanity is one. Ignorance of this fact does not change it. And we could have been much happier people ourselves, but for our indifference to the sufferings of others. We're all connected, and we, if we have compassion, it, eliminates, it will decrease our own suffering. She says, I find I've grown much more responsive. Maharaj says, good. That's possibly the only place in the whole book he says, good. <laughs> Instead of argue, arguing, it's good. <clears throat> when you say it, what do you have in mind? <laughs> Yourself as a responsive person within a female body? Question. There is a body and there is compassion and there is a memory and a number of things and attitudes. Collectively, they may be called a person. That's what you are. You're bundle of attitudes, what is it? Uh, there's some compassion, there's your body, there's memory, a number of things and attitudes, that's you. You're a bundle of things, like a tea bag <laughs> full of tendencies. <clears throat> Maharaj says, including the I am idea, is that also in there, the I am idea? She says, the I am is like a basket that holds the many things that make a person. That's interesting, isn't it? Or rather, he says, it is the willow of which the basket is woven. When you think of yourself as a woman, do you mean that you are a woman or that your body is described as female? He's really going for it, isn't he? Question, it depends on my mood. Sometimes I feel myself to be a mere center of awareness. Uh, Maharaj, or an ocean of awareness. <clears throat> but are there moments when you are neither man nor woman, not the accidental, occasioned only by circumstances and conditions? So say, what is leading her to a particular thing of that in our innermost essence, we're not male or female. We are the self, and the self can manifest as male or female, but it's beyond that. And according to the doctrine of rebirth, we have many rebirths in, on either side of that ledger. And these days, there are more possibilities than that. Question. Yes, there are, but I feel shy to talk about it. He says, a hint is all that one can expect. You need not say more. So that's, that ends that part. Question, am I allowed to smoke in your presence? <laughs> She's getting hot, a little nervous, I think. He's pushing her a little hard. And he says, am I allowed to smoke in your presence? And uh, I was quite taken by the fact that he, we were just three of us, him, Girija, and me, you were talking, and he was chain smoking the whole time. And I you know, come from an ashram which there's no smoking and so on and all. And there he was, that he was just vibrating shakti like this, and he's smoking away, blowing my mind. So she says, 
Am I allowed to smoke in your presence? <clears throat> I know that it's not a custom to smoke before a sage, and more so for a woman. Maharaj, by all means smoke. Nobody will mind. We understand. <laughs> he was a chain smoker. <clears throat> Question, I feel the need of cooling down, she says. She's got all, whatever the, his tendency of asking questions was pushing her to actually doing sadhana. And now this is a cultural observation by Maharaj, right? <clears throat> it's very often so with Americans and Europeans. That includes Australians. <laughs> yeah, you're part of Americans. <clears throat> After a stretch of sadhana, they become charged with energy and frantically seek an outlet. This is what he's observed from his, all the people who come there. Then they run out and, you know. <clears throat> they organize communities, become teachers of yoga, marry, write books, anything except keeping quiet and turning their energies within <laughs> to find the source of the inexhaustible power and learn the art of keeping it under control. <laughs> This is around, this dialogue would happen around 1970, possibly late 60s, possibly early 70s. <clears throat> the woman, I admit that now I want to go back and live a very active life because I feel full of energy. So her yoga has given her connection with the Shakti, the energy. Maharaj, you can do what you like as long as you do not take yourself to be the body and the mind. It's not about living, giving up the body and all that goes with it, but a clear understanding that you are not the body, that there's something more, something beyond. Even though you should live with passion and love, at the same time, paradoxically, there should be detachment. So the two things at once, detachment and live passionately. <clears throat> she says, I know what you mean, some four years ago, I passed through a period of rejection of the physical. I would not buy myself clothes. <clears throat> I would eat the simplest foods, sleep on bare planks. It is the acceptance of the privations that matters, not the actual discomfort. Now that I've realized that welcoming life as it comes and loving all it offers it best, is the best of it. So she went through a, a period of austerity. <clears throat> Famously, the Buddha went through a period. The Buddha went through a similar process, and he was trying to find the truth. He went to many teachers, and in the end, he thought that intense austerity was the path. And uh, so he, he uh, ate very little, and he meditated all the time. He did practices. They have pictures of the starving Buddha, statues of it in various places. He was so austere. And then he had his breakthrough, uh, and he saw that, that the answer was not too tight and not too loose. That the answer was the middle path. That's where he got the middle path. And the story that they say is that he heard a musician telling another, his student, when you tune the instrument, not too tight and not too loose. So you find that middle path. And when the Buddha heard that, he became enlightened. And then he ate, instead of fasting, he was fed some uh, uh, rice, 
rice kheer, some some uh, sweet rice rice pudding, and then he he got fat again. <laughs> That's why all the Buddhists are fat. So anyway. Uh, I've lost my place here. <laughs> he says, she says, welcoming life, I shall accept with glad heart whatever comes and make the best of it. If I can do nothing more than give life and true culture to a few children, good enough that my heart goes out to every child. I cannot reach all. Maharaj, by all means, get married and have children and enter fully into your family life. However, at the same time, be aware that it is all only a play on the screen of the mind, and the light of awareness is the only true reality. Now, that, that's a dharana. You know, I often talk about taking a spiritual idea and meditating, making it your own, not through intellectualizing it, but to actually meditating on it. So let's do that for a minute. Say that, that your life is really a play on the screen of the mind, and the real reality is the light of awareness. So just take that on for a moment. The real reality is the light of awareness. That light of awareness is always there behind all of our experience. Okay, that's enough. No enlightenment today. <clears throat> Why do you insist, she says, on awareness as the only real? Is not the object of awareness as real while it lasts? So if awareness is there, how about all the objects of it? Maharaj says, but it does not last. Momentary reality is secondary. It depends on the timeless. That things that come into your awareness are temporary. They come and go, and they all depend on your awareness being there. That's what the meaning of that is. She says, when I'm in touch with myself, I am happily at peace. But somehow I lose my bearings again and again and begin to seek happiness in outer things. Now she's really getting down to the essence. This is the condition of a seeker that has, gets, into, gets into the Tao of it, into the experience, and then loses it for some reason through some tendencies. Why is my inner place, peace, not steady? I cannot understand. Why do we seek worldly happiness even after having tasted one's own natural spontaneous happiness? Even though we've experienced the self, why are we always engaged in these uh, externals. He says, Maharaj says, when the mind is engaged in serving the body, happiness is lost. To regain it, it seeks pleasure. The urge to be happy is right, but the means of securing it are misleading, unreliable, and destructive of true happiness. So he's saying it's right to seek happiness, but you're seeking it wrong. Let me see. I got, uh, oh man, it's going on. What shall I do, David Mount? Shall I end? Yeah, I don't think I can finish this. I'll find a place to end, okay? <clears throat> she says, 
Is pleasure always wrong? Maharaj, the right state and use of the body and the mind are intensely pleasant. So you really want pleasure, then cultivate wisdom, cultivate the self, because that's really pleasant. The state of shakti, the state of peace in this state is the real, much more pleasurable than external pleasures. <clears throat> it is the search for pleasure that is wrong. Do not try to make yourself happy, rather question your very search for happiness. It is because you are not happy that you're desperately searching for happiness, but find out why you are unhappy. And you'll find that happiness is the prior existence. Because you are not happy, you seek happiness in pleasure. Pleasure brings pain. Then you long for some other pleasure without pain, which you call spiritual happiness. In reality, happiness is within and beyond all that happens. Happiness is as much in the world as beyond it. Make no distinction. Don't separate the inseparable and do not alienate yourself from life. <clears throat> Let me see. I think we'll end there. And she says, "How now I understand you, she says at that point. It's a good dialogue. <clears throat> so let's meditate. And what Maharaj was leading her towards was to find that source within. It's very simple. It's very simple. The world is some kind of illusion. It's a very rich illusion that we can get meaning and ultimate value and happiness and fulfillment from pursuing all these goals. And what the sages say is, hey man, hey woman, listen. Happiness is actually within you. Contentment is actually within you. Joy is within you. Love is within you. You have to spend a little time turning around, turning your awareness inside and find it. It doesn't mean you have to go to a forest and give up your life as you know it. You can do that. But also every day, meditate a little bit. Focus on the I am, the self within. Discover that place. And when you discover that place, you discover that that self is full of energy. And then that energy will guide you. And you'll see when you move away from that energy and you feel out of touch with it and you feel depleted, that's good that you do that because you know it's like a device, a homing device. And you can turn back and discover the way back to that place, that energy within. <laughs> it's like being in a maze and looking for the, the way to the goal. And meditation is a great way to discover that. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. We'll turn within and look within. And what Nasagadatta Maharaj says and what Muktananda says what Bhagavan Nityananda says, and what the Buddha says, is that the truth is within us. And it's within us in every person. You weren't created and that piece was left out. That's not possible because it is 
inherent in your own awareness. It is, in fact, your own awareness. So go within, quiet the mind. You can say the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, or contemplate I am, as Maharaj would say, and find that still place, that clear space of good feeling at the core of your being. We'll meditate now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sat Gurunath Maharaj Ki Jai. Let's meditate now. <laughs> 